there is this character called um, Raskolnikov, um, and he's in a pub, and he's overhearing this conversation. And it goes like this. Um, it's a conversation between, I think, a student and uh, a police officer um, in a pub, and it says like this. No, I'll tell you what, I could kill that old woman and make off with her money. I assure you, without the faintest conscience prick, the student added with warmth. The police officer laughed again while Raskolnikov shuddered. How strange it was. Listen, I want to ask you a serious question, the student said. Um, I was joking, of course, but look here. On one side, we have a stupid, senseless, worthless, spiteful, ailing, horrid old woman. Hopefully you get the picture there. Uh, not simply useless, but actually doing mischief, who has not an idea what she is living for herself and who will die in a day or two in any case. You understand? You understand? Yes, yes, I understand, answered the officer, watching his excited companion attentively. Well, listen then. On the other side, fresh young lives thrown away for want of help by the thousand. On every side, a hundred thousand good deeds could be done and helped on that old woman's money, which will be buried in a monastery. Hundreds, thousands perhaps, might he set on the right path. Dozens of families saved from destitution, from ruin, from vice, from the hospitals, and all with her money. Kill her, take her money, and with the help of it, devote your, oneself to the service of humanity and the good of all. What do you think? Would not one tiny crime be wiped out by thousands of good deeds? For one life, thousands be saved from corruption and decay. One death and a hundred lives in exchange. It's simple arithmetic. Besides, what value has the life of that sickly, stupid, ill-natured old woman in the balance of existence? No more than the life of a louse or a black beetle. Less, in fact, because the old woman is doing harm. She is wearing out the lies of others. The other day, she bit my wife's finger out of spite. It almost had to be amputated. And the conversation goes on, but we're going to stop there. So, in the city of St. Petersburg, this uh, guy, Raskolnikov, who's living in poverty, overhears this conversation in a pub. And he finds this student justifying the uh, murder of a nasty old pawnbroker who used to um, sort of harm the lives by taking too much money uh, from other people. Uh, she was unscrupulous and, and uh, um, she was offending lots of people. And Raskolnikov, who listens to this, hears this justification for doing wrong and it resonates in his mind. He thinks, you know, that guy is right. In fact, he'd already been thinking these thoughts, which is why it begins with that comment of how strange it was that he should hear it now. And so Raskolnikov, the protagonist in this uh, story, after overhearing this uh, conversation, decides to go to the house of the pawnbroker and in quite a violent scene, he kills her with an axe. He is filled with a sense of he knows what's wrong and right, he feels superior to this woman and he feels that um, if only her wealth could be redeployed amongst everyone else, that somehow the world would be richer and that a slight wrong deed would be overcome by uh, generosity with her riches. 
Now, I don't know whether you know it, but uh, that passage and this story um, is called Crime and Punishment. And uh, it was written by this character called Fyodor Dostoevsky. um, And he was a Christian, and he lived in Russia. And before he wrote this book, he spent 10 years in prison in Siberia. And in Siberia, um, under kind of lock and chain, uh, he was often only able to look at the New Testament for entertainment. I wonder how you would do with that. Some of us can't go two minutes without looking at our phones, and this guy was only left with the New Testament uh, in Siberia. And so it became something uh, cemented in his soul, his faith. And he, he seemed to have developed in this time in prison this uh, acute understanding of spirituality and of psychology. He seems to know people really well, and it comes out in many of his books. And it comes out in this book, Crime and Punishment, because we find in this book this reflection on good and evil. We find in this reflection um, the understanding that evil isn't necessarily just doing something that we were told not to, but it is a bit more profound. Doing evil and being sinful is all about ourselves taking on the mantle of God and saying, I am going to make a decision what is right and wrong. I am going to be the arbiter of what is morally good and what is morally damaging. And... Um, that's been the case since Adam and Eve. When they were presented with this tree, with the knowledge of good and evil, um, they, God said, do not take a, a, any fruit from that tree. And Adam and Eve decided that God's decision of what was morally right and wrong wasn't right, and that they should make the call what is morally right and what is morally wrong. And that is what humanity has done ever since. When you are sinning, it is not just you are going against a rule, but you are saying, I am God in this life and I am making a decision that this practice I am up to is okay, regardless of what anyone else says. It is when we set ourselves in God's place and that, is what sin is. Don't know whether this picture is going to be too graphic or not come out well, uh, but it's a very famous uh, print. Um, It was done in 1751. It's called Gin Lane. Um, It was by a guy called William Hogarth. And at the time, uh, particularly London, uh, was kind of... uh, in the grips of a gin plague. We live in a time where gin is a, um, a sort of a, um, a sort of a culture drink. You know, there's lots of small distilleries and it's all very hip and cool. Uh, but uh, in the sort of late 18th century, gin uh, was this really cheap drink and it was uh, just imbibed by everyone. And there was a moral panic because the society was disintegrating. And so William Hogarth uh, created this print um, about the, sort of the dangers of gin. Um, and if you look carefully um, in this uh, print, you will find infanticide, because 
uh, mothers no longer cared for their children. You find starvation because people either didn't care about themselves or preferred to buy gin over food. You find madness as uh, uh, they drink too much. You find decay as they let uh, their lives go to rack and ruin. And you even find suicide as it damages how people think. And so uh, uh, Hogarth's Gin Lane is this uh, uh, um, sort of uh, the worst case scenario of London uh, in 1751. If you've got a Bible, turn to Isaiah 59. It says this in verse 2. But your iniquities, your evil, your sin, have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Your hands are stained with blood and your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. Do you see how pervasive sin is? It's everything from murder to talking badly. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. In our society, we have uh, a euphemism of this. It's called spin. You know, we, we just change things slightly uh, and it paints a prettier picture. And, and Isaiah says, let's call um, it what it is. Um, they conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes, and acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned uh, them into crooked roads, and no one uh, who walks along them will know peace." So justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light but all is darkness, for brightness but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong we are like the dead. Isaiah paints this really grim picture of what it is for us to say we are God And we are the ones that decide whether something is good or evil. He gives this picture of blackness, of poison, of blood. And we have this pattern in Isaiah that when we make up morality for ourselves, when we decide what is good and what is evil, there is a descent There is a deterioration. We have increasingly awful behaviour because there are no guidelines. There is no rules outside ourselves. There is no pathway to follow. And so we go from bad to worse. Holgarth in this uh, picture kind of reminds us that 
this very conspicuous evil of if you take on drink, it very quickly damages your own body and it damages society. When uh, you take too much on, things go downhill very rapidly. But um, that deterioration is not confined to drink. Yes, you can drink and then your liver uh, gives up or you get violent or uh, something else and life deteriorates. But it happens in every area of sin. You may think you are better than the drunk, but Isaiah would say otherwise. Isaiah says, you speak badly, you are the same thing. You, are, you practice injustice, you don't give people what they deserve. That is the same thing. All of these things bring a deterioration in your behaviour. This chaos of increasing measure is found in every sphere of life that we decide we know best. How many times does the mere entertaining of lust lead to immorality, infidelity, divorce and broken lives? And it starts with something that our society would say was innocuous. How many times has envy led to thieving and dishonesty and injustice? How many times has greed ended up uh, exploiting this planet and doing other people out of money? There is a pattern in sin that if you follow it, it gets worse and worse. The um, facade can sometimes look fine. You may not be a drunk. You uh, may not be uh, up to substance abuse. You may look, from society's perspective, okay. But the pattern of sin is that you go into this downward spiral and things get worse and worse and worse. And it is a terrible thing. When we dismiss God's ways, we end up embracing destruction in increasing measure. And it's a terrible thing to behold. If you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. I feel like we're motoring through Peter now, having got to chapter 4. It says, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. And isn't it coincidental that Tim chose a song where uh, that very sentiment was articulated? For you, uh, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are, um, they are surprised that you do not join in with them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Peter begins this 
by saying, um, if you embrace discomfort and even pain rather than make up your own rules of life, that is a good thing. And that shows that you are done with the old way of life. If you are happy to say, I would rather endure physical discomfort or pain rather than make up my own rules, Peter says, you have understood the nature of good and evil. You have shown which side you stand on. To put it bluntly, and it is blunt, Jesus preferred imprisonment, torture and death rather than decide his own will was more important than his father's. In that Garden of Gethsemane where he wept, he was like, you know what, I really don't want to go through this. And he could have, and I don't know what this does to the Trinity, but he could have decided, you know what, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through this. I want to choose my own path. I want to choose my own morality. I want to make the, my own choices to what is good as evil. Um, but he didn't. He chose his father's will and chose that death and on a cross. And that pattern is a pattern that Christians are supposed to follow. If you call yourself a Christian, that is what your life should look like. It is not one of uh, just smugness or moral superiority. It is not one of just being vaguely kinder than your next-door neighbour. But it is this constant choice of, I will choose God's goodness, God's will over every single alternative. Now, let me be very clear. You do not need to seek out uh, hurt and pain and discomfort. You, we are okay to meet inside in a heated building. Um, that doesn't make us less godly. Uh, and it doesn't mean that when we are punished for doing wrong that somehow this passage applies. If we are caught doing something illegal and we are punished for it, you cannot run to this verse and go, oh, it shows that I've been done with sin. No, no, you, you've got the wrong end of the stick. Peter here celebrates the one who chooses God's will over every other alternative. He celebrates the one that chooses celibacy over immorality he's the one that uh, celebrates sobriety over inebriation he's the one that says it is better to be poor than to look for dishonest gain it is better um, to be lonely rather than seek evil company time and time again we are confronted by choices Time and time again, uh, we have the opportunity to choose God's will, to choose his way of thinking, or to say, I am the arbiter of good and evil, and I will make a decision in my own reasoning. And Peter says, the person that chooses God's way is the one that is done with evil. It is not so much about rules, but where your heart lays. And 
I don't know whether this is effective here, but Peter reminds these believers that they used to live like that. So it seems that Peter's writing to a bunch of Christians that became Christians more later in life. They weren't sort of brought up Christians uh, uh, and they probably weren't necessarily sort of dominantly Jewish, but they were sort of Gentile pagans who became Christians later in life. And Peter says, you remember how you used to live. You remember how... uh, the morality was arbitrary and you chose it. And he says, you remember how it went increasingly wrong for you. He says, you that I'm writing to, you're aware that when you live your life your own way, it is destructive and it gets progressively worse. He goes, why would you go that way? You're done with that. You know it from experience. Some of those of us that were raised... Christians, uh, we don't necessarily have sort of encountered um, all the uh, delights that sin has to offer and, 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 and the struggle can be different. But the person that has come later in life to become a Christian, they know that the alternative is wretched, that the alternative just leads to nowhere, that it doesn't go anywhere good at all and it gets worse. Suffering for good is hard. It is not delightful. It is difficult to sing about it. But the consequences of allowing evil and pretending it is something else is a lot worse. Now, I haven't checked this quote, whether it was actually Bruce Lee, uh, but I like the the idea that it might have been. Um, And... uh, It's got a quote from, possibly from him, and it says, When you find yourself in a room surrounded by your enemies, you should tell yourself, I am not locked in here with you. You are locked in here with me. This is the kind of mindset you should have if you want to succeed in life. Get rid of that victim mentality. After Peter applauds those that choose hardship over an easy life, he observes that Christians continue to live alongside wild folk, alongside people that are still making up uh, right and wrong as they go along. Christians still live alongside those that make constantly bad decisions and making worse ones. And as these wild people around us give in to every new deceitful promise of pleasure, Peter says, these wild people look in on us. They look in on these people that would rather discomfort than a quick false win. They look in on us who are self-controlled, who are careful, and they are surprised They are weirded out by you Christians who live differently, who don't seem to do the same things in the same situations that they do. Why on earth don't you engage in gossip? Why don't you sleep around? Why don't you cheat and lie and swear and envy and get angry and drunk? Why don't you indulge in these things? They bring spice to life. They are entertaining. They allow you to get stuff 
an add to your wealth. They allow you to ingratiate yourselves with your friends and family. And then the apostle tells us a real truth. The surprise of these wild people who live by their own rules. That surprise turns sour very quickly. They descends into abuse. The annals of church history for the last 2,000 years are full of wild people looking in on Christians and becoming abusive towards them. Uh, there are so many uh, sort of ancient church fathers who witnessed firsthand uh, what uh, Rome did uh, on sort of false accusations. But I want to read to you uh, something else um, that I'd never encountered before. This is the sort of thing that keeps me interested in, in sermons when I uh, come across this. And it says this. There rose a port reports of incest from their talk of love feasts, of cannibalism from the language of eating and drinking body and blood. As they attracted converts, many outsiders became convinced that Christian success must be the right result of erotic magic, strong enough to tear wives away from their non-Christian husbands. After all, a number of Christian accounts of martyrdom did indeed describe women leaving their husbands or fiancés for Christian life and death. The second century African novelist Apuleius, who clearly detested Christianity, described an adulterous Christian wife as turning to an old witch to regain the love of her wronged and furious husband. But the scheme went wrong and a murderous ghost goaded the poor man into suicide. It was a small step from such suspicion and righteous indignation to violence and riots. And history is full of moments when the Christians are identified as being different, as having different values, and they become the subject of scorn and abuse and violence and torture and death. And this still goes on today, though uh, generally uh, uh, not in this country. So when the wild folk watch you And they are surprised that you don't do what they do. As they become abusive, uh, as they don't understand you, and they think you are damaging things. Do not be surprised. And don't be angered by them. Don't suddenly go, oh, I'm really surprised you're being abusive to me because no one ever told me so. Peter says it's going to happen. It happened with Christ. It has happened for Christians for 2,000 years. When you face a wild uh, person who makes up their own morality as they go along, it is almost inevitable that they will come to a point of abuse because they look at your lives and they are confused and that confusion leads to negativity. And Peter says, it has always been thus. And we today get to be prepared and say, be prepared for it. It'll come your way. If it hasn't already, it will. And Peter doesn't say, 
that the believers need to argue meticulously over every misconception. We don't go uh, and need to uh, defend every single point. No, no, I'm not more holy than you. Or this, that and the other uh, that we get accused of. We don't also, we don't retaliate. Can I just say that? If someone is abusive to you because of your faith, you don't get to be abusive back. That's also uh, uh, something uh, that needs to be said, maybe. And that's very easy to fall into. Peter talks about us being faithful as followers. And how do we do that when we face and endure such persecution? Well, we're going to go into this next bit. Um, I know I've published the questions for home group and some of the questions may be a little bit confusing, but hopefully this will inform them. Today I want to finish by helping us see why Peter imagines that Christians can endure persecution, how we can endure hardship and uh, abuse and being pushed to the outside of society. How can we, like Bruce Lee, be standing in a room full of our enemies and stand tall and confident? Because Peter tells us how to do that. Because you see, when we are surrounded by the wild people who make up their own rules, it is really easy to just give in and just say, you know what, I'm going to behave just like you. Because it's just too difficult to do otherwise. Or to get angry or, uh, or some other improper response. Peter claims our answer to standing tall in a room full of enemies is to see ourselves in uh, eternity. To see that this room that we're standing in, surrounded by our enemies, is not the full picture. That there's a much uh, bigger game afoot. Now, um, I don't know whether you've ever read the end of your Bible, but the apocalyptic writings of Uh, Apostle John are crazy. There is some language and pictures with heads on heads and multiple limbs on weird creatures that will freak you out if you're not ready for them. And what it means is often that Christians kind of draw away from Revelation or become so immersed in it they don't read any other book. Um, And uh, one of the best ways of looking at Revelation has been uh, through the words for me of an Australian theologian. I don't often uh, encounter Australian theologians but it seems there are a few out there and there's this guy called Graham Goldsworthy um, and his understanding of Revelation, of eternity and heaven have been the most helpful I've encountered of any other writing. Let me read to you this. It is a difficult subject, so if you can't get your head around it, um, don't sweat it too much, but this is something I found helpful. Finally, the end will be openly manifest. It will no longer be something that only believers acknowledge by faith. It will be the irresistible and undeniable sense experience of all. Well, Christ is known through the preaching of the gospel as the slain lamb, 
Only the gift of the Spirit to the elect will awaken faith in that reality that the Lamb has now, at this very moment, the glory of the Lion at the right hand of God. So it's by faith now that we think Jesus is going to be revealed as King. And then he goes on. But when Christ returns in glory, when he returns in glory to judge, though he will eternally be the lamb, this symbol of someone that was slain for our sake, he will be revealed in the glory of the lion, both to judge and consummate our salvation. And that's one of the reasons why uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is a lion, because it gives this picture quite distinctly. And it goes on. The New Testament gospel thus restructures the coming of the kingdom in a way that is vital for us to grasp. There is, in effect, an overlap of two ages from the first coming to the second coming of Christ. And I've tried to uh, find a picture uh, for you up there. I chose one with butterflies on it to make it slightly more attractive. Um, Slightly less theological. So this creates a lion-lamb tension which uh, characterises Christian existence. This is the time we live in. There is a tension between being in the world but not of it. It is the tension between being of the kingdom but not in it. As the lamb suffered until the glory of his kingdom was bestowed at his resurrection, so the body of Christ might suffer, and that is you and me, until we likewise are raised and transformed into the glory of Christ's image. What this guy is saying is that, I'm going to go to this here. So the dotted line at the bottom is the old age, the, uh, the age where Christ hasn't been uh, revealed and his kingdom isn't established. It's the age of sin and death. We still live in the age of sin and death. We have got uh, a couple of people in our congregation who are facing the death of a near one right now. We are still in that time of mourning and sadness, but... Since Jesus' arrival, there is announcement of a new kingdom that's coming. A kingdom where death and destruction and sin and disease no longer apply. And so we are between these two red lines. That old kingdom is still around. We are still suffering. We are still facing death. Jesus hasn't done away with it uh, completely. But the kingdom is coming, and we see instances of it. Hopefully, each of your lives in this room, those that love Jesus, can testify, I have seen a difference the kingdom has made. So you are part of this new kingdom that's coming. I'm afraid your bodies still ache. I'm afraid loved ones still die. I'm afraid work is still hard. But the kingdom is coming. And this second line is Jesus' second coming. And when that finally comes, all that old stuff of that dotted line passes away. And so you are living between these two red lines. And you are looking forward, not just to death, but to this coming kingdom. This straight black line that will bring liberty, that will bring love, that will bring 
pleasure that will bring joy. It is, can be a difficult thing to understand, but again and again, the Christian needs to understand we are living in this time where the old kingdom hasn't fully gone and the new kingdom hasn't fully come. We wrestle with the fact that God answers some prayers, but some death and sin still seem to win out. And if you wonder why that is, it is because we are in this between times. And so when you are in a room surrounded by your enemies, you know that they belong to the old age, that uh, their time is numbered, that their days are coming to an end, that in the future... There will no longer be enemies at all, but just friends. And it is this understanding, this tension between the now and not yet, that is really good for Christians to grasp. So Graham Goldsworthy calls it critical. He says it's really important. This is what Peter is saying. You need to have this understanding uh, of eternity to do really well. If it's just, oh, I'm trying to be good today, then you are limiting your scope. You are somehow inhibiting uh, the power available to you and the larger picture that Peter and Jesus and God want you to see. Finally, um, for us today, Peter considers those that have died. So, Peter was writing, you know, Jesus had died, rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And Peter was now writing to Christians that had lived, been taught about Jesus, confessed him as Lord and Saviour and died. And the question is, so what happens to them? Jesus hasn't come again. Um, What are we to understand about people that have died but that love Jesus? Are they asleep? Are they unconscious? Are they in hell? Are they in purgatory? What has happened to their spirits? And Peter says, the obvious, he says their physical bodies have died. Their human uh, uh, physical bodies are surrendered to the grave. They have that material death. But their spirits, this thing that makes them who they are, that has lived on. Lived on because of what Jesus did. And there is a moment where all of us will die unless Jesus returns again. And then when Jesus does return, these spirits get reunited with a new body. And I always think that it is difficult to conceive of heaven. And sometimes when you read Revelation, it is less help because it is more bonkers than you thought. Um, and so I'm going to read uh, something else from uh, Goldsworthy's book. And hopefully it's helpful. And if it isn't, I'm, I'm sorry for wasting your time. So it says this. To return now to the question of the meaning of heaven. The fact that Jesus Christ is now at the right hand of the Father in heaven and that he has gone to prepare a place for us in the Father's house does not mean that our final destiny is to be separated from the physical universe. Do not imagine that material stuff is evil and that all we need to 
want to be is spiritual and that heaven is somehow an ethereal place where we all float around without faces. Jesus has taken his own body to heaven. In that is bound up the redemption and renewal of the physical universe. It is in keeping with the scriptural perspective that John sees the new heaven and the new earth and that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God. We need not suppose that this is meant to convey a literal descent of the city out of the sky. So this guy Graham Goldsworthy saying, when you read Revelation, you need to read it as a load of word pictures trying to convey something that is really difficult to say. This thing, when John says at the end of Revelation, you know, he sees the city of God descend, um, it is the final touch to the regenerating work of God. It establishes the kingdom which is not from this world. The heavenly country which Abraham longed for in Hebrews 11 is not a land in the sky, but a tangible dwelling for redeemed mankind and one in which the people of God will truly relate to God, mankind and the world. It is a dwelling from God, a city from heaven. But when it is set up in the centre of regenerated earth, it will mean that the dwelling place of God is with men. Heaven won't be somewhere far off, but it will be where we are. This is how the story began in the paradise of Eden. If you struggle with the idea of heaven, if you struggle for the idea of heaven to nourish you every day, if you struggle for the idea of heaven to nourish you while you choose um, discomfort over sinful ease, I think is sometimes the easiest way is to consider again the Garden of Eden. Because that is how the story began. And Graham Goldsworthy says, and the Garden of Eden is how it will end, in the regained paradise of God's kingdom. It says elsewhere in the book, forget about wandering and flying around with wings on your back and harps in your hand. Forget a lot of the paintings that you've seen. Heaven... It's going to be difficult right now to describe, but it is coming and it is going to be wonderful. If there is anything in this life that you take great joy in, that you find edification from, that somehow kind of lifts your heart, that is a slice of heaven. That is a sneak peek of eternity. If you find something right now that delights you, you can guarantee that you will be able to see that in eternity. Since the Garden of Eden, believers have known enough to go on, to know that heaven, though we can't say, nail it down with a scientific formula, is going to be wonderful. It is going to be more wonderful than you can imagine. I love taking my kids to new places. 
Um, so Sophia's off to LaserQuest, and I'm excited for her because she thinks um, excitement is here, and then you give her a, a gun with a laser on it and the opportunity to hide behind things, and I think the level of excitement will rise. And uh, you take them to K2 Swimming Pool, and they think excitement's here, and then you take them to the Coral Reef in Bracknell, which is a massive uh, swimming pool full of flumes. Their excitement goes up. And this level of beauty and excitement is great to see uh, sort of elevated in kids. And that is heaven. Whatever you know of delight and joy in this life, it is going to blow your mind when you get to heaven. It is going to be more beautiful than you can imagine. If you've seen somewhere uh, that you would really like to go, then heaven is going to be better than that. It's going to be like that, but better. And words quickly run out, but you must continue to have that in your mind. Because it is how you stand strong in a room full of enemies. When you are wanting to just give in and go, you know, I'm going to get my mora- let my morality slide. I'm going to get, let my values go because it is just too difficult. And Peter says, remember, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Remember, the judge is coming. Remember that The Christians who've died already, their spirit is with God. Remember that being in the company of God is more uh, perfect than you can imagine. Every inadequacy you've ever felt, experienced, that will evaporate in the company of God. And Peter says, this idea of heaven should keep you going. When all else fails, this longing to be with Christ, this longing to be with God, should be able to keep you going. If you can uh, wrap your mind around it and keep it at the forefront, it will help you so much. It is uh, a thought that is easily polluted by lots of different uh, sort of non-Christian ideas. But the idea of heaven is very biblical. And the idea of it being like the Garden of Eden is biblical. And the idea that it is going to be something like this, but more magical, more wonderful, more beautiful, uh, uh, more joyful, more delightful, is very biblical. It is something to look forward to. It is the reward that Jesus is keeping for your faithfulness, for, uh, for your uh, perseverance. Hold things in this life lightly and look forward to the consummation of God's kingdom. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we continue to thank you for the words of Peter. Heavenly Father, I thank you um, that those of us that follow you have left behind those old ways that lead to destruction. And Lord, I pray that you help us continue not to make up our own rules, but to understand your ways and your methods and your values. And... uh, Heavenly Father, I, I, I just pray that we would uh, have this good idea of heaven, that it would be something in the forefront of our mind, that we would be uh, running the race to reach the prize, as uh, uh, Paul says. That, Lord God, that we would be able to stand tall in a room full of our enemies and not flinch or worry because we know in the end you win and that we win with you. 
Lord God, I thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.